Hello, hello, hello. My name is Robert. I am the recovery guy, and you have entered into the fix. Hey, my name is Robert. I am a recovered alcoholic. Uh, two alcoholics uh, walk into a bar, and uh, there's a sign up on the wall that says, uh, all you can drink, $10. And both of them say, we'll take two. <laughs> and that's the way we drink, right? That's why we do everything in life. We do everything, I do everything alcoholically. No matter what I did in life, and I won't list it, uh, most of us, if we stay out there long enough, we... We run into some other behavioral issues that are tied to our alcoholism. Um, one thing I will tell you is I haven't found it necessary to drink or to use since April 25th, 1986. And um, that gives me 13,574 days of not burning my house down. Because that's what we do as alcoholics. And for those of you who are new or relatively new to the program, if this offends you, understand it's meant in love. As long as you are alcoholic and, you will probably never get well. You will probably never get well. And the reason for that is, as long as I was and, alcoholic and drug addict, nothing wrong with that. I know so many of us along our journey, we encounter drugs, but my first meeting of 12-step recovery was Gamblers Anonymous. And it didn't work because I didn't work it. What I, what I do know is that when, when, when the alcohol problem was solved through the 12 steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, my sponsor and all the other people who gained and added to my life, everything else eventually went away. My bulimia, my, my pornography, my gambling, my compulsive overeating, everything went away when I addressed my alcoholism. And I hope you find that to be true for you this evening. You know, I, uh, I remember my first meeting. By the way, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service and anyone who serves. Um, GSR is, is an important thing and John and I were actually having a conversation with the person downstairs tonight before the meeting and talked about the importance of service you know when when I came back from my relapse and I was sober a few months and, and you know when you have that moment in time when you understand how dangerous you really are you come face to face with the reality of how fortunate you are just to be alive, let alone not in prison, or stuck somewhere in a mental institution, which most of us qualify for. And I remember going to my sponsor, Jack, and I said, Jack, there has to be something, there needs to be a formula, there needs to be something that I can do to ensure that I would never go out again. He said, service. He said, I've never known anyone actively involved in service who has relapsed? Maybe you do. The key is actively involved in service. Not just serving for the sake of serving, 
but actively involved. That 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. It's practicing these principles that gives me the ammunition to share with the other alcoholic. Because we're not as level out. We, we are sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. Right? The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm going to read to you a couple times tonight. I know this is not a book signing. But there's so many things in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. From the doctor's opinion, the forward to the first edition. If you don't know why the big book was written, I'm going to tell you right now. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely, this is italicized, precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. So if you're ever wondering why this book was written, it wasn't written to, to tell you to get sober. It was written to show you how they got sober. And if I'm willing to align myself with the first 164 pages of this book, guess what happens? 13,574 days later, I can stand in for you and say, I'm a recovered alcoholic. And there's no greater joy than that. Because where we come from is sad. It's lonely. I mean, and not, not just when we started drinking, but when we were young. I don't... We all come from different places, but we all share the same emotion. That's, that's what makes us alike. That's where we can come into agreement, complete agreement. And it says on page 17 that there is a solution. And I'll read that to you before I close. And we come from a place that is lonely. No matter how love was given, in what quantity or quality it was given, whether you're a single parent home or a double parent home, whether you're alcoholic or not or codependent, no matter what your family situation was, there was a missing component in us that told us we were nothing. And I remember that. I remember going through the steps and trying to find out where this whole thing happened. Because there's nothing wrong with alcohol, but there's something wrong with alcoholism. There's something wrong with me feeling I need to medicate just so I don't blow my brains out. Something's wrong. And, and for most of us, that starts when we're young. For me, I can remember five years old, going to bed at night. I remember my drunk father coming in saying, God is love, God bless you, and God is your life. God, 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 God. And I'd go to sleep, and i think, if God is real, how come it hurts so much being me? And I'm five. And I don't understand it. All I know is it got me emotionally sideways. From that moment on, I became the type of person that needed to do things for you to like me. Because if you knew how inadequate I was, you wouldn't like me. You would go the other way. So early on in life, before I even knew what I was doing, I was wearing these disguises that everything was okay. And you know, when you go through that, it sets up a pattern in us as alcoholics, as someone who needs medication just to get through their day. And it's not surprising that 
so many of us start our drinking and using when we're 13, 14, and 15 years old. Right after puberty. One time, my, my first sponsor, Max Brooks, told me, he said, I don't know how much of an alcoholic I am, but I know that I have a love disorder. And, and he would say that no matter how love was given to him as a child, he never learned how to receive that feeling, that affection, that regard, no matter how it was given. And there came a time in early adulthood where he was expected to give back what he never learned how to receive. Big Book says, but obviously you can't transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship was right. With him as writing, great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. But when we're young, we don't, we don't understand that. We just think something's wrong with me. How come you're not connecting to me? How come no matter how good or how indifferent or how unbalanced my family is, how come I feel like an outsider? And the pain, it goes and it goes and it goes and it builds and it builds and it builds. You know, my first drink was because I could get away with something. I was 14 years old, sat under my tree during the summer with Don and Dean and Johnny from down the street. All of our parents were alcoholic and we hung out, right? And, uh, and so, so there came a time where all parents were passed out and, and Dean would get some wine, I would get some 10 high and Johnny would get some cords and we'd sit around the tree and, and we drank for the first time because we could get away with it. But something magical happened. You know, when you come from nothing, and you are nothing, and you're always going to be a nothing. Being an almost, that's everything. And alcohol made me an almost. And all I had to do was drink. And it put to sleep the feeling of being inadequate. It put to sleep the one thing I was afraid that you would find out, that I was nothing. And, you know, when you're 14, you, you have to pick your spots when you drink. You can't drink all the time because you have this thing called school and you've got to show up. And fortunately, you know, like Radar, we, we know where all the cool people are. So in high school, there was this place called B Court behind the handball courts. And we drink Spanada back then. It was really classy wine. It had a screw top and everything. <laughs> and... Uh, and, and we would do second all and speed and smoke dope and, and then we'd go to school. We'd get properly primed so we could face our day. And this went on and on and on until I gave this, got this dependency. You know what tolerance is? Tolerance is I need more tomorrow than I did today to make me feel the way I felt today. That's a rough clinical definition of what tolerance is. And as that progressed in me, how I felt about me and about you seemed to get set aside. Because the minute I introduced King Alcohol into my system, everything that made me feel bad was now diminished. You know, Father Martin says it's a natural human response to seek relief from that which is uncomfortable. When, it, when, when it's cold out, we put on a jacket. When, when we have a headache, we use an aspirin. When it's raining, we use an umbrella. Where, where he was going is, what do we do when what makes us feel uncomfortable is us? We medicate. For me, it was alcohol. And I began creating a dependence on that. 
this is a true story. January 3rd, this this will let you know I needed to be restored to sanity. <laughs> January, January 3rd of 1972, I walked into the registrar's office at Corvallis High School and I said, I'm dropping out of school. I was going to graduate in May. I could have not shown up and I would have graduated. But I had to let them know that I was dropping out. It was really important to me, establishing my, burning myself down in front of other people. And, and I went in the street and the registrar said, you can't do that. And I said, I can do whatever I want. I'm 18 years old. And that started the defiance drinking, the anger drinking. And not only, now, now did I not drink because, because I was inadequate, I was drinking because I was angry on how life was treating me. Well, you can't go through life the way so many of us go through life and not expect a negative result, right? So everywhere I went, and, and it wouldn't have crossed my mind that I had a problem with alcohol. I had a problem with you. And until you changed, until you got on board with my way of thinking, we were only going to get so close. And I would drink more and more and more and more. I went into the Air Force and, and I found out that these are geographics, right? I had to find out from Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, because I would always move, change jobs, change living circumstances, change relationships, you name it. I needed to get out of it because I figured you were going to either make me uncomfortable or you were going to figure me out and both were unacceptable. So I would drink and I would leave. And, and, and so I went into the Air Force in, uh, in, in May of 1972, dropped out of high school to go into the Air Force. Makes a lot of sense, right? So I never got out of basic training. I got out of, uh, I got out of the Air Force on a general discharge, inability to adjust to military life. Kind of appropriate. I, I had the ability, inability to adjust to life. The fact that they threw in military in there was quite a compliment. Made it very specific. It made it their fault. Right? So they sent me home with a 20 milligram prescription, open-ended prescription of Valium, and I was home free. I spent that whole summer wondering why scars were on my chest because cigarettes were going on in my chest and drinking and eating Valium. And then that wasn't enough. What's going to work this time? I know what I'll do. I'll get married. That'll, that'll fix everything. So I had a girl I was dating. I was in Southern California at the time. I had a girl I was dating up in Oregon. Um, she, was, she was nice enough to fool. Right? And when you're a player, a manipulator, a legend in your own mind, you can get over in any circumstance. And I got her to believe that I was someone that I wasn't. Because I had alcohol masquerading on my behalf. And those are just samples of things that I would do. I can't even, I can't even, doing my first step was very difficult because I had to recount things. And that was really hard for me to do because certain things, you know, Bill talks about it not being able to differentiate the true from the false. You know, I, I, had to sort, I had to get to that point. Did this happen? Did that happen? And so that was characteristic of my life. And no matter what I did in my life, I would burn my life to the ground. No matter how good my life would get periodically, because it did get good periodically, but I would burn it down because I had to drink. I had to use. 
I had to engage in other behaviors that were negative just to make my feel good feel good. You know, and you go through life that way and family members begin to pick up on it. They know what I'm denying, that I have a problem with alcohol. I remember I'd have to go get drunk just enough to get that nice edge on so they wouldn't, so they wouldn't know how much I drank once I got there, right? Because we could drink when we were there, but they couldn't see how much I drank. So I showed up drunk, got a little bit more drunk, and I would leave early because I would have to get a lot more drunk. Because everyone made me feel uncomfortable. I didn't like who I was. I didn't like who you thought I was. And I was tired of you telling me that if I didn't do certain things, my life would be better. In actuality, you telling me that I needed to do different things was the real problem in my life. That's why in the big book it says we had to admit to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. Not step one, but I had to admit to my innermost self. But I went through that until I was 32 years old. Relationships, jobs, every situation you could name. I either left before I got found out or they found me out and told me to leave. There was, there was no middle of the road for me. Because chronic alcoholism, by the way, is a terminal illness. If you don't stop drinking, drinking will stop you. There is no Monty Hall. There is no, there is, there is no door number three. There's two doors. You either do the, this is where I may step on your toes and I make no apologies. You either do the program of Alcoholics Anonymous or you die. Period. Because alcohol is out to get us. Why do you think I still go to meetings? Why do you think John still goes to prisons? Why do you think our Roy is still GSR? Because we know we can never let the foot off the gas. Because eventually we'll get rear-ended by alcohol. And next thing you know, what, what, what happened, Robert? What happened to John? Boy, they sounded really good. They stopped serving. They stopped working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new or relatively new to the program... I was on the phone to my sponsor today, 43 years sober. He was on his way to a meeting in Gallup, New Mexico, on his way across the country. Everyone I've ever known who was sober with any period of time whatsoever is following the 12 steps, which is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, period. So I didn't know all that in the beginning because I don't know I'm an alcoholic. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles in downtown L.A., right where the original Angel's Flight was over on 3rd and Hill, if you're familiar with that area at all. And so I knew what an alcoholic was. I was three blocks from Skid Row. They pushed a shopping cart, they were homeless, and they drank cheap wine. I wasn't there yet. But in my mind, I was better than them. So I couldn't be them if I'm better than them. Job after job, moved to Las Vegas in 1980, and Las Vegas was the best friend I ever had. Las Vegas did for me what California couldn't. Las Vegas turned a minor fender bender into a head-on collision that almost killed me. It accelerated my timeline of drinking and using like an elevator would go 11 floors and slam to the ground because everything was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
So I get to Las Vegas, right, geographic, move the wife, move the kids, my marriage is on the rocks. And I think, this, Vegas, this, this is going to work out great. So I go there, and I become a food server, what do food servers do in, in, in Las Vegas, right? They serve alcohol as well as cheap 99 cent breakfast at, at the time. And so I live this way, I always, you know, because that's one thing that alcoholics do. We protect the supply. It's the first rule of alcoholics. And if, and if wherever possible, we get a job that allows us to drink, either on the job or on the side where we don't get caught, because I'm not able to go eight hours without a drink. Not at this time. I can't go an hour without putting something in my system. Because I'm living probably at a, at a 2.5, 2.6, And that takes a constant um, resurgence of alcohol to keep that level up. Anything below that, I would start experiencing anxiety. Back in 1982, I was sent to the uh, Nevada Psychiatric Center. And the psychiatrist there told me that I have had uh, obsessive compulsive disorder with alcoholism. And his prognosis was I would never get better. That's how far down we go. It says no matter how far down the scale we have gone. Right? And that's how many of us get there. But you know what? That wasn't enough of a bottom for me. Because I wouldn't get sober for four more years. I had to have another marriage. Right? Before I was ready. I had to, I had to be homeless before I was ready. I had to lose countless jobs. And, and back in those days, I made a lot of money. I was a room service waiter at the Las Vegas Hilton. I killed it in hospitality suites. Do you know what we had in hospitality suites? Wet bars. So I could drink anywhere I went. Whether I was taking my children there or, or being there by myself. Everywhere I went, alcohol was involved. And I remember February 9th of 1986. I went to Davies Locker, I'd lost my job at the Las Vegas Hilton at $1,000, and I lost it all gambling. Thank God I got free drinks, right? And I went home to my mom and dad's because I had lost my apartment. And I went home to my mom and dad's, and I woke up the next day, and I look in the mirror, and you know how you hear voices? And those voices were saying, Bobby, 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 what are you doing? Because that's all I ever heard. What, what are you doing? What you're doing and how you're living doesn't make sense to anyone. And yet you refuse to live another way. And this particular morning on February 9th, 1986, I looked in the mirror and there were no voices. Nothing. It was silent. And I knew that I was going to die. I'm 32 years old. You ever look at yourself in the mirror and you see someone who's dead? And it's just a matter of time. It's not if I'm going to die. It's that I'm going to die. And I remember my mom and dad were already gone. And for the first time in my life, I admitted maybe I have a problem. And I looked in the yellow pages, for all you youngsters, there, there were books in yellow, very, before Google, and, and I looked under alcoholism. And prior to that, 
I'd have never admitted that I was an alcoholic. Because you know when you admit something, now you're, you have to do something about it. Right? But I looked under alcoholism. I had no money. I had no insurance. I had no job. And I started calling places. And the Nevada Treatment Center on Martin Luther King Boulevard in Las Vegas talked to me and they said, if you can get here in one hour with $50, it was back in 1986, $50 was a couple dollars. Uh, now it's lunch. Uh, if you can get here in one hour with $50, we'll talk to you. Now my dad had been sober seven years at this time. So I called my dad on the phone. I said, Dad, I need help. And if you can get me to this treatment center in one hour with $50, they'll talk to me. And my dad, he got there so quick. He was, he was not wanting to lose his son. He almost lost his own life. So my dad picked me up, took me to Nevada Treatment Center, and that was the beginning of my journey. But I was still afraid. I remember going to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, a similar Lano club, not quite as big in Las Vegas. On uh, It's called the Turning Point on 3rd between uh, Casino Center and, and uh, Main Street. And I remember walking in, and I didn't know where I was at. I didn't know anything about AA. I just knew I was just a treatment center, and they said, we're going to go to this meeting. So I go into this meeting, and all these people are just like you. They're laughing, they're joking, they're having a great time. There's not any alcohol anywhere to be found. And, and I didn't know anything about sobriety, but I thought, I, I want to be around these people. So I remember going to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I decided, I don't want to be around you. Because people were telling truths that were making me feel very uncomfortable about me. Because you were telling me about me. You didn't use my name, but you were telling my story. And I realized that, I know you said keep coming back, but I was convinced that if you knew who I was, what I did, and where I went, is my mind, I would be the first person in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous that you would ask not to come back. I was convinced of that. So I have measured, and I want you to know that that worked right up until I got drunk. And I, I just couldn't take it. I couldn't, I couldn't handle the honesty. It just scared me beyond my ability to process it. And it was necessary for me to drink just so I could calm the pain, quiet the madness, do what I call go through life sideways. Because facing it head on was far too painful. Fortunately, my dad was there to bail me out one more time. I remember telling him I relapsed, tried to spend the night, and he looked at me and said, Bobby, your mom and I aren't gonna watch you die. And he took me to the Red Butler Motel on 15th and Fremont in Las Vegas, and he paid a week rent for me, and my dad walked away. And I was really alone. I'd given up on the people in Alcoholics Anonymous, my dad was on his last leg with me, and I had one week to decide what I was going to do. So what is any good alcoholic does? He gets drunk. 
and I tried to recapture that feeling of being an almost, but I couldn't. That was gone. I had been in AA 71 days, but it was long enough to know that there was a place for me to go to feel good without burning my life down. And I remember a turning point. It was at the Sundowner Saloon, which is now torn down on 15th and Fremont, Caddy Corner from my hotel. And I went in there to order a scotch and a beer. By the way, the only good reason for beer is to water down is to chase good scotch. <laughs> I tell you I drank good scotch, but it was the cheapest scotch available. Uh, it's kind of like I, when I drank wine, it probably never saw a grape, but it was called wine. <laughs> and, and I remember it was shift change, and I don't remember this person's name, but they were a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And as, as they're, I can see them and recognize them, and they've got my scotch in their hand. And, I'm in, and, and he looks at me and he says, if you're lucky, there will be tomorrow. And I walked back to my hotel, and I did everything I could to not drink. And the next day I showed up back in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was April 25th of 1986. And I began to understand what it took to take someone as hopeless as me to where I wanted to go. And by divine providence, my sponsor at the time, Max B, it was a late lunch bunch on, on an on a afternoon, and Max was there, and he normally wouldn't be there, but he had a God appointment. He didn't know it. I didn't know it, but I showed up. And I went in, he didn't say, where you been, what you doing? He knew exactly where I'd been and what I'd been doing. And he said, are you ready? And I said, Max, I, I need this so badly. He said, well, you don't understand. There's a whole city out there that needs this program. But if you want what we have, and you're willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And he said, get on your knees, we're gonna do the third step prayer. And that was the beginning of my journey. And I'm so confident in the 12 steps in the big book that I really so appreciated getting the call from you because it makes me study more. I listen to more speakers, I go to more meetings when I know I'm gonna speak because the only way to teach is to learn. I was on the phone with my sponsor today, 43 years sober. Just talking about stuff because that's what we do. I heard a funny joke that said, I got a sponsor and he actually knows he's my sponsor. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I was telling my friend Thomas that, you know, if I go three or four weeks, says, who is this? Who is this? Is this Bobby? Am, am I still your sponsor? Have you fired me and I just don't know it yet? Right? <laughs> but everywhere I go in the legacy, every, everyone I know who is helped me in my journey either died sober or they're still living as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the steps are the most important. If you're a new relative or new to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and you're not doing your steps, you're just buying time. Because relapse is real. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. They're such unfortunate they're not at fault. They're naturally incapable of, of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Period. 
And if you have a problem with anything I'm saying, come up to me after the meeting and show me in the first 164 pages where I'm wrong. Because this is all I know. Everything I am and everything I know comes from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and things that I've been led to as a direct result. The 12 steps. You know, my friend Pete the Greek, everyone had a nickname in Las Vegas. Pete the Greek, Texas Mike, Abe the Plumber, Doc Irv, you name it. But I remember Pete telling me, Pete was sober probably 20 years at the time. And I said, what step you on, Pete? He said, step one. And come on, Pete, you're on, you know, whatever, 10, 11, and 12 is where I live. And Pete said, no, step one is the only step you have to do perfectly. Because if you make a mistake in step one, you're drunk. The minute I think that I am not powerless over alcohol, and my life is better managed by me rather than my higher power, I spin out of control. I burn my life down. And so do you. So we, we start with step one. We admitted we are powerless over alcohol and our life had become unmanageable. And that opens the door to all of the other steps. Because if we don't do step one to perfection as good as we possibly can in that moment, why in the world would I ever admit that I was insane and I needed restoration of sanity? If, I'm, if I don't need restoration of sanity, I tend to believe that a power greater than myself, really, someone's more powerful than me? I'm a legend in my own mind. I'll kill you, I'll kill me. It's the great cry of every alcoholic. So when I come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore my insanity, you know what the insanity of alcoholism is? The insanity of alcoholism is after a period of sobriety, we think we can drink again. That's the insanity. And then we become willing to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood God. The big book says that the spiritual life is not a theory. We must live it. See, I believe that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous aren't designed to keep me sober. They're designed how to introduce me to a power greater than myself. And as a result of that relationship, I won't drink. And I won't burn my life down. And if you think anything else after that, other than that, see me after the meeting and we'll talk. Because everything is God-centered. Not a religious God. And, and that's one of the things that Bill had to change. He changed from God to a power greater than ourselves. You know? For, for many of us, it's the group. It's not a coffee cup. It's not a doorknob. If, if it's a coffee cup or a doorknob, then you don't need to be here. you got a doorknob and a coffee cup at home. You don't need to come here. But what John read or whoever read it, Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that we might solve our common problem. Common means human in, in Latin. We might solve our common problem and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. We're a fellowship. Where in the world would everyone know everything about me and still want me to come back? <laughs> I don't know a place. But the more you know about me, you realize how sick I really am. And I was very sick. 
I was so sick I walked out on my wife and children. I literally moved my children out from the front door so I could go drink. What kind of person does that and then justifies it? So we have all this baggage and we take a fearless and moral inventory in step four. And we have to share it. God already knows everything. I've been lying to myself forever. But I need to find another human being that I could trust enough to share the things that I did along the way. And that's where the fearless comes in. Morality speaks of God and fearless means that I can say in front of Ben, this is who I was, this is what I've done. Would you please help me? And you know, when I was that honest with my sponsor, he jumped at the opportunity to help me. My sponsor died with 44 years sober uh, in a hospital in Las Vegas, and I still miss him to this day. And then we go into step five, we step six, where we ask God to remove these defects of character, and then we humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Do you know that the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are written in the past tense? Read them. It's assuming you've done that. Having had, came to believe, made a list, continued to, sought through. I mean, read the steps. It's assuming that you've done them. You know what a, a defect of character is? A defect of character is that I've had a flat tire, a shortcoming is that I don't have a spare. And we go to God to help find these things. God helps point out to me where I'm deficient. And then he makes up that deficiency when he removes the shortcomings to unlock my ability to do things. And then we get to step eight. And we make a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Because we did some real damage. And we have to make amends. We have to at least make the attempt that I'm very sorry that I harmed you in this way. I hope you can forgive me. And then in step nine, we make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Do you know what's interesting about step nine, John? You accepting my request for forgiveness, my amends, is not necessary. Do you know that? You don't have to agree you could walk away and say, you know what, you're still a jerk. I still don't like you. But I made direct amends to the best of my ability. And that's all my responsibility is. So if you're in that phase of your program and you're wondering why someone hasn't forgiven you after you've made a sincere amends, maybe they're not ready. Maybe you harm them beyond their capacity to say it's okay. I know that's true with one of my daughters. She told me, she said, Dad, we're only going to be this close. And if that's okay with you, we can have a relationship. But if it's not, I can't help you. And it broke my heart. It's the oldest girl I walked on. It broke my heart. But I had to get past it because I did the best I could. And I'm a living amends today. I'm a sober grandfather. She never has to worry about me and my grandkids the way she would have to worry about her and me. And then it's interesting, steps 10, 11, and 12, because I believe the steps are everything. If you're not doing the steps, get on the steps right now. Find a sponsor, get a big book, work the steps, which is the program of the Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not by accident that step 10 is continue to take personal inventory. 
In the big book, it talks about it being a, a spark check throughout the course of our day. At the beginning of our day, at the end of our day, a semi-annual and an annual house cleaning. And that understands, that helps me understand my humanity, how frail and how inadequate I absolutely am. Thank goodness there's a step 11 where I sought through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for the knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. And I get that power. I give up power that was killing me in step one to receive power in step 11 that allows me to be bulletproof. I'm not arrogant. I'm, you have no idea how much confidence I have, though. Because I believe in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that set me free. And then that launches me into step 12. I have to do something. If we read, I think it's page 85 or page 86, where what we really have is a, is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And then after that, it says, go find God's vision for you and go carry that out. What greater vision to help someone who is still sick? Says the answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you can't transmit something that you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. That's what it says. So I find out that my relationship with God is right in step 11, which launches me to step 12. But that doesn't relieve my obligation because now I have to practice these principles in all my affairs. I would love to stop and tell you how wonderful I am, but in the meantime, I have to take my own inventory. You know, and thank God you don't follow me around all day. The inventory would not be as good as I do it at the end of the day. But everything rises and falls on the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the first 164 pages. And I hope you find what so many of us have found. I'm going to read one page and then I'll close. It's my most favorite page of the big book. And, and I love them all. By the way, did I tell you I'm a recovered alcoholic? <laughs> if you have a problem with that, see me after the meeting. <laughs> says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous know thousands of men and women who were just as hopeless as Bill. Nearly all have recovered. Are you ready for this? They have solved the drink problem. Figure that one out. We are average Americans, all sections of this country, and many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are a people who normally would not mix. But there exists amongst us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck when camaraderie, joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to the captain's table. Unlike the feeling of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our own individual ways. The feeling of having shared an uncommon peril is one element in the powerful cement by which we are now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out of which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. My name is Robert, I'm alcoholic. Thank you.